you can get them. Um, so let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll get started. Uh, Father God, we just thank you for this time. We thank you that we can come together on the Lord's Day and, and worship you as a, as a body. Um, just thinking about the goodness that you've given us, the grace upon grace, Lord, that we were dead and we became alive, that we were once enemies and now we are sons and daughters. Uh, Father, just help us today to prepare our minds and our hearts, Lord. Teach us by your word. Uh, help us to put off those things that dishonor you, to put on that which honors you. Lord, please, more and more, show us your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you look at the notes, there is a lot. But most of it's because I wanted to give you resources uh, that you can use in the future. So uh, for first-timers or people who have come before, we're going through the Baptist distinctives. And today we have the, uh, um, the, the chance to go through the ordinances. So if you look at your notes real quick, I told you guys last time I taught, I gave you like a little acrostic. And so I felt bad not giving it to you in like written down form, printed out. And so I have the whole thing there. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we are going to read the one that we're dealing with today. So if you can look at the part on the first page, that's T, two ordinances of the church. And so I'm, I'm actually quoting this straight from our um, church website, this one in particular. Um, so it says, Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus, obligatory upon every believer, wherein he is immersed in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as a sign of his fellowship with the death and resurrection of Christ, of remission of sins, and of giving himself up to God to live and walk in newness of life. It is a prerequisite to church fellowship and to participation in the Lord's Supper. Uh, continuing on, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of Jesus Christ to be administered with the elements of bread and wine and to be observed by his church till the end of the world. It is in no sense a sacrifice, but it is designed to commemorate his death, to confirm the faith and other graces of Christians and to be a bond, pledge, and renewal of their communion with him and their church fellowship. Afterwards, we have the verse in Acts where they, they baptize the gentleman. There's water. What, what must I do? Let's do it now. And then the next verse, 1 Corinthians 11, says, For I received of the Lord that which also I have delivered unto you, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. So just to kind of give you an idea of how I'm structuring today, um, could I have just taught you baptism and Lord's Supper and just tell you what they are in the proof text and be done with it? Yeah, I could have. I could have done that. Um, but I think it's important that we kind of understand, like, not only the historical way, we're, the historical reason we are where we are, but also that you would understand what other Christian groups believe, right? It's important to know like the full orb. I don't want us to get to a place where, oh, they don't, they sprinkle their, they sprinkle their believers, they're going to hell. Like there are certain things that don't divide us in terms of salvation. And so I just want to make sure you have a good idea of what everyone believes. Um, so let's, moving forward, we're going to start in a second. On a history 
of the ordinances. So I think there's a subheading I have there that you can look at. All right, so interestingly, uh, you might have, you, we use the word ordinance, but you, I don't know about you, but I've heard most of my life the word sacrament. Um, usually when you think the word sacrament, what do you think of? We tend, at least I do, stereotypically I think of the Catholic Church. But that is not actually their exclusive use of that word. So let's go ahead and take a look here. So like I said before, there are two words uh, that are used to describe these practices that God calls us to do. So the way we would define, I'm going to give you the general definition, and the reason why this is kind of difficult is just like with any word, words have changed meanings, and people use them differently. So some people use a sacrament and how you would understand an ordinance, and some people use the word ordinance to describe sacrament. So I'm going to try my best to clear up as, as much as I can. So an ordinance we would just generally define as a practice commanded by God to be done to, unto God, okay? This is primarily the emphasis on the person, and they're doing it because God has called them to do it, okay? A sacrament, its general definition, is a practice commanded by God to be done to God, which imparts divine blessing, okay? Some believe salvifically it is imparts, some believe just into sanctification. And we'll, we'll talk more about it. I'm not going to leave you. So like I said, the confusion is that different denominations at different times use these words differently from these general definitions. Okay? Some, like I said, see ordinances as still having a means of grace, and some use the word sacrament, and they use it to mean simply symbol. The thing you need to understand is that there are essentially three, well, actually, no, I'm not going to go forward. So the way I'm going to break this down to you is by looking at three major branches of Christianity in world history, and we're going to see how they each solve the use of these words. So we're going to, pay attention to what I said, the Christian breakdowns based on world history. We know that maybe some of these big denominations, I'm going to say, we may not say are biblical anymore, but nonetheless, historically speaking, they, do, they are a historical Christian organization. Okay, So we're going to look at Roman Catholicism, we're going to look at Eastern Orthodoxy, and then we're going to look at Protestantism. So we may ask the question, where does the word sacrament come from? Okay, So it's a Latin word, sacramentum, and it was used in the Latin translations of the Bible for the word that in Greek was known as mysterion, or we would translate in English as mystery. Um, this word, and I'll give you the verses, but it's essentially used to describe something that God had not given a clear view but over time, he finally reveals that. That's this mystery when the Bible talks about it. To give you proof text, we can look at Romans 16, 25 through 26. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, have been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. So we see that, right? So he says, okay, there's a mystery. We didn't know it in full, but now it has been revealed. So this is the word mysterion, which is the word that translated in Latin to sacramentum, which is now the word sacrament, okay? Um, next, another verse, Ephesians 3, 3 through 5, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I write before in brief, by referring to this, um, 
When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So just kind of getting the word, that's the word that they're translating sacrament. It's something that was, God didn't get full revelation at the time, but we know ultimately everything's revealed in Christ, and now in Christ, we see these things for what they are, okay? So um, the reason the word ordinance started coming into play, well, first of all, it started coming into play because of the Protestant Reformation. And not all the reformers got rid of the word sacrament. Uh, Luther and Calvin would still use the word sacrament, but other reformers stopped using it because of the heavy connotations that that word carried. Does that make sense? And we understand that in modern day, right? There are certain words I just prefer not to use with people. So for example, when I talk to a normal person who's maybe not educated in Christian beliefs, I usually very rarely do I use the word belief. I use the word trust, right? I don't use the word faith. I use trust because in their mind, faith and belief is petty. It's empty. You can believe in Santa Claus. You have faith that your dad is Superman. But trust does impart what I want them to understand, right? So that's why these words kind of started being used differently, right? So sacrament just had all these connotations to it. And we'll talk about how the Catholic Church uses that. Um, so ordinance became a way to kind of like, we want to talk about the biblical reality of this, but we don't want to carry all that junk that comes with it when you think of the Catholic Church, okay? So in terms of ordinances, there is a couple differentiations. Uh, there's, in these three groups, there are two things we're going to specify what's different and alike. So there's the, the number of ordinances that churches believe there are, and then there is the nature of ordinances, Okay. So starting with the Catholic and Orthodox beliefs, they believe in at least seven, okay? And so remember, that, remember, sacrament's the word that it's something that God has commanded you to do, okay? So these are the ones that the, the Catholic Church has. Uh, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, that's their whole way of how people become priests, and matrimony, Okay? Uh, the Orthodox have also seven. They have, a, I, I couldn't find all the details, but they do tend to have more on that list, but I think officially it's still seven, okay? And then the Protestant belief is that we have two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, moving to the next page. Um, so historically, how did this happen? How did we come from seven to two to all this stuff? So First of all, St. Augustine, 5th century um, bishop, it's kind of interesting, Augustine's one of the few people that every Christian denomination wants to take credit for. Uh, everyone can at least agree with one thing that he says. <laughs> so his definition of what a sacrament or ordinance was, is kind of becomes like the, the basis definition. And so what he said was that an, a sacrament or ordinance is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Uh, we fast forward, so we go from the 5th century to about the uh, 1100s. We have a gentleman named Peter Lombard. He kind of uh, started kind of codifying or, or putting into writing officially of there being seven in particular. And this was supported uh, throughout uh, several Christians through history. So Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s, and then even in the Council of Florence in the 1400s. And then we get to the Council of Trent now. 1500, and this is what they say. They say, if anyone says any one of these seven is not truly and properly a sacrament, 
let him be an athema or a curse. So we're going to see this a lot during the Protestant Reformation time is that the Catholic Church will kind of have like an anti-Reformation. And so basically everything that we affirm to, they're going to say it's a curse if you believe that. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of what you're seeing here. Um, the reason, though, primarily that the Reformers brought it to two is because, remember, the Reformers were trying to return to right understanding of the Bible. And so they're like, well, when we read Scripture, it seems very clear to us that there are two commands that God gives us from the mouth of Jesus. And so those are the ones that we're going to leave it at. Okay, and so here are the verses that we would go to. Yes, Julian. Correct. Correct, yeah. So the, so, yeah, yeah. So I guess that's important to understand. I'm talking historically the Protestant Reformation. And if we, maybe I got to make sure I don't assume everyone knows what I'm talking about. This happens um, in the 1500s. Essentially, the church has become this universal, powerful entity, and they have lost sight of the gospel, Right. People can't read the Bible because it's now in a dead language. Um, traditions of the church are much more of higher value than the Bible itself. And so by God's grace, because God loves his people, uh, God puts the Bible in the hands of particular people that begin to read it and ask themselves, hmm, they're doing this. This isn't matching up. Who wins, the Bible or the Pope, the Bible or tradition? And so actually the reformers initially weren't trying to separate the church. They were asking the church to come back to right understanding. But eventually, when someone isn't willing to acquiesce, then you're at an impasse. You're either going to be like, well, let's just stick with them, or we're going to honor God, and we'll separate if we must. Right? It's funny, I was reading about the Eastern Orthodox Church on their website. They're very they're, the way they advertise themselves is, we are the church from the beginning. We haven't changed at all. We are the true church. And, and if you remember, one of the slogans of the Reformed movement is that we are always reforming. The Bible always tells us that we will drift from truth. It's just a sad reality. From one generation to, a next, to the next, a lot can be lost or distorted. And so when they say, exulting, we never change, I say, well, one, you do change, but you're not examining yourself to see it and to do something about it, right? So let's just hopefully, as we as a people, that we would not fall into that idea. Yes. Tell me. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to talk about in regards to that idea of like adding. So, I've always, you know, we can easily be like, man, Jesus spoke so hard against the Pharisees. They were like some bad people. But we need to remember that oftentimes something bad started off good and then little by little it changed, okay? So the Pharisees originally were a group of people that wanted to honor God and wanted the people to honor God. And so think about this because this seems really, this doesn't seem like a bad thing. They're like, okay, okay, you know, sin is bad. God hates sin. We don't want the people to sin. Okay, what can we do to help the people not to sin? I know if we put up like, like walls or barriers that are like further away from sin, then there's no way they can sin. So if we put this rule that says you can't do this, and that's like 50 paces from the actual sin, then no one's going to sin. We're good to go. 
It came from a good place. The problem is over the generations, the laws that men made became seen as the same or greater than God's law. Instead of being a tool, they now replace that, they use that to replace God's law. And I think the Catholic Church probably in many of their seasons, they had really well-meaning people and they tried well-meaning things, but pragmatism is not what God calls us to. He calls us to faithfulness in the word. But I, I just think that's important to know because I think we can easily create like this idea of the Catholics are evil and bad, <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying that there aren't evil and bad people in all, in all realms and places, but remember, the drift or the movement to heresy is not something that you and I are immune to. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, you are prone to begin to see things wrongly if God's not, if you're not examining and testing, you have solid brothers and sisters helping you see truth. On that note, that's why it's important, like, when we think about, like, what are the creeds and confessions? They're meant to help keep you on the path. Can creeds and confessions be used wrongly? Yes, there are people who use them as above the word of God. So with any strength that we may have in this faith, any resource, trust me, your flesh and the, and the devil will use it to try to distort the truth. So always just be on guard and have a soft heart for people that are lost because the only way they're going to see is if God gives them sight. Okay, so going back to um, the number of ordinances. So the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they held to seven. Um, we see that it was Augustine kind of set the definition for the church, and then they pushed it to seven, and eventually the Catholic Church says, if you don't believe these seven are sacraments of God, then you are to be cursed, okay? Now here are the verses that the Reformer, what we would say the Protestants, would understand why there are only two ordinances. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and give thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I didn't write the finishing of the verse, but where he says, do this until the end of the age, okay? So those are the numbers, so that we have two. The other big uh, factions of Christianity have seven. Now the nature, uh, this is where it gets kind of interesting. So there, <laughs> there are three general categories. Like with anything, there often is a spectrum, Right? There are people who are like a mix of two or three, but here are the three main ideas of the nature of an ordinance, or what, what does the ordinance entail? Okay? So the first one, this is the one that the Catholics would hold. They say the sacraments infuse grace by their administration into the people of God. His grace is transmitted through the sacraments as they are administered, and that grace affects the transformation of the character of their recipients whose participation in the sacraments is necessary for salvation. Well, let's think about that for a second. So when a Catholic baptizes a child, they honestly believe that because it doesn't matter, the child doesn't know nothing, but you put it in the water, it's done by a priest, they are getting infused within them the righteousness of Jesus. Okay? So it actually does a spiritual thing. Okay? You might even see this with some of our little wacky Protestant brothers that say baptism saves. That's essentially what they believe. They think the act of doing it, God moves in that, okay? The second part, which is like a middle ground, this is, um, I don't know where we hold as a church officially, 
I lean towards this one, though. <laughs> um, it says, The sacraments are means of grace by which God confers the benefits of salvation to his people. Rather than infusing grace, the sacraments, in conjunction with the word of God, offer a promise of divine blessings or sanctification to the recipients who appropriate the promise by faith. So what I want you to think is, are the ordinances all spiritual? Like their, their primary purpose is to give spiritual blessing. Or are they symbolic only? That's going to be the third one. Those are like the, 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 po the, the, the extreme, not the extreme, but the, the north and south. And then in the middle, this one says it is symbolic, but there is spiritual blessing. Not salvific, but it seems that maybe the Bible says that there are blessings to take the Lord's Supper. There are benefits and positive effects that God gives if you are obedient. Okay? And like I said, the third one, this is the one that most Baptists hold, most Protestants hold, and this is that these, um, these ordinances are simply meant to be symbolic. They represent a spiritual reality that has already happened uh, by God, okay? So, the ordinances symbolize the faith and obedience of the people of God. Rather than transmitting grace or serving as a means of grace, the ordinances are opportunities for the recipients to express their allegiance to Christ, right? So, I think that's no, currently, that's like the Baptist understanding. The reformers probably held, some reformers held number two, uh, some held three. None of them held the first one because that's what they were running from, right? <laughs> this idea that if you just sprinkle a kid with water, they are now saved. That's ridiculous, right? So now let's talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper specifically of how there's like subcategories and what pe different people believe. So the first one we'll talk about is pedo-baptism. That is what you would understand, the baptism of children. But let's not skew it. A pedo-baptist baptizes believers and the children of believers. It's not children exclusively. Let's make that very clear. Sometimes we paint this picture, oh, they only baptize children. No, they baptize believers and also the children of believers, okay? Um, Catholics do this, but they do it based on the number one understanding of the nature. It gives them what's necessary to be saved, okay? A Presbyterian will follow the, the second position, that there are blessings conferred in the baptism. That's the whole reason, one of the reasons why they baptize children. They would never tell you it's unto salvation, but they would tell you they are part of God's people because they are children of, of believers, and therefore they have blessings that to be had, and baptism is what allows them to have those blessings. Kind of like they would compare it to the Old Testament where everyone who was in Israel was a male would be circumcised. Um, we wouldn't say that gives them salvation, but it was a sign that God called you to do, and there's a blessing because you are now associated with the people of God, okay? And then, um, let's see, I already said that. And then we hold to the position of a, a credo-baptist, creed being confession, so that's what we, we call it more a believer's baptism, right? We, people baptized are those who confess that Jesus is Lord. Do you understand? That's why we don't do babies. Because <laughs> babies don't have the ability to make that confession, right? So this is normally found in the Baptist and Protestant denominations. And like I said, this could be two or three in terms of the understanding of the nature. If it's just a symbol, I think we tend to speak in that form, the idea that this is to represent a spiritual reality. You don't get baptized and then you're saved. You're saved, and baptism is just the public confession and the obedience to Jesus. Um, people who hold credo-baptist and hold the second position, they would simply say, uh, yes, 
Oh, they would simply say that, uh, yes, baptism doesn't save you, but being obedient to God's commands, there are blessings to be had. God blesses his people. Not salvifically, but like we said here, in the form of like sanctification. Uh, yes. Baptism is also seen as how you enter into the church. Correct. And so we just read that at the, um, in the acrostic, that baptism is how one of the parts of you becoming uh, a member of a, of a church, right? Okay. So now we're going to the Lord's Supper. So there's a couple words used for the Lord's Supper. There's the word communion. Um, it draws from the word koinonia, which means fellowship. Uh-huh. I just wanted to ask a question about uh, baptism. I know earlier you mentioned that some of the, some of the Protestant denominations believe in like baptismal regeneration. We're not saved until you actually get baptized. Yeah. Us saying that we believe that that's wrong, how serious of an error in terms of the gospel do we think that, that is? Like, would you say somebody's not saved if they hold to that, or that's just you just Man, I haven't thought about this since I watched Duck Dynasty, <laughs> because those guys <laughs> believe that. I can't remember. Uh, so he's asking, like, like I said, there are some people who would hold to f- fairly Protestant beliefs, but they would believe that uh, baptism is a part of the process to be saved. And that's maybe the way to explain it. It's part of the process. That's still dangerous, right? Um, I don't know. I haven't gone so far to, I mean, I would never condone it. If someone believes it, I'd be like, look, we got to fix your thinking. But can a person ignorantly believe foolish things and still be saved? I mean, do they still hold that Christ is the one and true way? You know, I don't know. I haven't gone down that rabbit hole to see for certain what I would say. Um, yes. It's very simple. There's this script. The thief on the cross. Yeah, for example. So Julian was saying that to believe that baptism saves you, then you have to think of the thief on the cross with Jesus, for he was not baptized, and yet the Lord promised that he would be with him in paradise. paradise. Yes. So, if an individual is trusting the fact that they went underwater for their salvation and not Christ, yeah. that's not Christianity. Good, that's a good point. Even if they're calling themselves a Protestant. Yeah, that's right. If they believe that it's the water that saves them, not the blood of Christ. Mm. You're not a Christian. Yeah, so is saying that if we're talking about, you know, if a person, where does a person put their trust when it comes to their salvation? Is it actually in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, or is it in some other means? In this case, we were talking about their confidence, and because I was dunked in water, I am now saved. That is definitely a great place to point it to, to see if someone has confidence, good confidence, or their confidence is in a false hope, right? Um, so back to Lord's Supper. So like I said, we use the word Lord's Supper. Some use communion. Like I said, the word that they're drawing that from is koinonia, which is fellowship. And so I'll, I'll read the verse where that word is used. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is not the cup of blessings which we, which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So that word sharing is that koinonia, fellowship. So that's why the word communion has been used. Another word that we hear is the word Eucharist, which it really means just to give thanks, okay? And so reading another verse where it's used, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So these words are not far removed from scripture. Uh, I remember before reading, doing this study, I was like, man, those words are bad. Don't use those words, but they have their place, right? They're not like completely just thrown out of left field. Okay. 
So, the Lord's Supper, there are quite a bit of positions in terms of what's happening during the Lord's Supper. It's a little technical. We'll try to summarize it after I read these technical definitions. I I primarily provided the technical uh, definitions because I wanted to honor the position, and I'm not going to try to summarize something I I don't believe because I know I'm going to probably not be, I'll be more lenient to not do it justice. So I've given you the technical, and we can talk about maybe summarize what it means after I read it. So the first one is transubstantiation. Uh, This is the Roman Catholic position. It's officially proclaimed in 1215. During the administration of the sacrament of the Eucharist, the communion, the Lord's Supper, the bread is transubstantiated or changed, is the word, into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ by the power of God. As explained by Thomas Aquinas, transubstantiation is the change or trans of a substance, that which makes something what it is. However, the accidents, the characteristics that can be perceived by our senses, remain the same. So that's just a fancy way of saying when they do their, uh, their, their Lord's Supper or communion, they honestly believe that it becomes the flesh and blood of Christ actually, but from the human perspective, it still maintains the characteristics of the bread and the wine that it is. Um, one second, let me finish the definition. Um, As the sacrament of the Eucharist is administered, though the bread still looks, smells, feels, and tastes like bread, its substance has been changed into the body of Christ. Similarly, though the wine still looks, smells, and tastes like wine, its substance has been changed into the blood of Christ. All Protestant churches reject transubstantiation. The reason why we reject this, one of the reasons I can think of, is essentially what they're doing is they're crucifying Christ anew. Does that make sense? That's the reason that when you see crosses in their churches, Jesus is still on there. He is essentially perpetually sacrificing himself every time um, a communion is taking place in the Catholic Church, which is foolishness for many reasons. But if I had to talk about it, Hebrew says Jesus was the once for all sacrifice. Boom, done. <laughs> like there, there's how it is. It's all good, okay? But that's what they believe it to be, okay? So Christ is essentially sacrificed in you every, every time they have their mass, okay? Um, did you still have your question? Or? Yeah, yeah I, it was actually more of a statement than anything because transubstantiation uh, um, is, is actually evil because, well, first of all, yes, once and for all, but it's a form of alchemy, and it's, I consider it, Evil. I consider sure. Sure. And, and I would say ultimately any, any teaching that counters scripture and is going to draw people from seeing Christ wrongly is evil, right? No matter how you spin it. Uh, yes, Michael? When, so when you say that they're essentially sacrificing Christ again, you say that Catholics believe that Jesus is being sacrificed again, and so by, by, taking, oh, sorry, by taking place in the Lord's Supper, you're like, getting the, the grace of having your sins forgiven because he's being sacrificed. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, so that was like a practice of manipulating the elements to create things. Uh, oftentimes it was connected with like spiritual things and things like that. Um, but yeah, so yes.
Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, yes, Corey. <laughs> sure, sure. We'll, we'll see when we get to that at the end. <laughs> yes, we'll get, see when we get to that at the end. So transubstantiation, the elements, Christ's blood and flesh are now in these um, substances or in these things. They're still bread and wine, but they actually become in substance the flesh and blood of Christ. Once again, the Protestants completely reject this. We reject this idea. Christ is not sacrificed every single time. He's the once-for-all sacrifice at the right hand of the Father sitting because the work is complete. Okay? Um, the next position is consubstantiation. So if anyone knows Spanish, con is with. And so um, this is the Lutheran view. Um, the Lord's Supper is a last testament made by Christ as he was about to die. And this promise, he designated an inheritance, the forgiveness of sins, and appointed its heirs, all those who believe in his promise. Moreover, during the administration of the sacrament, Christ is truly present in both his deity and humanity. So this is a very common phrase they'll say. They'll say, in, with, and under the substance of the bread and wine. Because Christ's body is everywhere present in accordance with his words of institution, this is my body, God brings about the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So basically what they're saying is they're basically trying to say, look, some people want to turn the Lord's Supper to merely be just an act of obedience, but we believe that God works in that. It's not that he's being crucified anew, but that there's an actual spiritual benefit and blessing that God infers when taking the Lord's Supper. Okay, so that's, that's that position. Um, memorial, so this is what most Baptists hold, is the view of many non-sacramentalist Baptist churches. As developed by Hudrig Zwingli, this position is that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of Christ's death. Being located in heaven, Christ's body and blood cannot be present in the sacrament. Moreover, Christ's words of institution, this is my body, are figurative and cannot be taken literally. Accordingly, the memorial view stands against both transubstantiation and consubstantiation. Most importantly, Jesus commanded, do this in remembrance of me. Thus, the Lord's Supper is a memorial celebration by which the church remembers what Christ did on the cross to accomplish salvation. Okay? And then the last position, this is where our Reformed brethren hold to mostly, spiritual presence is the view of many Reformed Protestant churches. Moving beyond the memorial view, John Calvin maintained that the bread and wine are certainly symbols, but they are not empty symbols. That they render what they symbolize. By his spiritual presence, Christ presents himself and his saving benefits through these means of grace. How Christ can be located in heaven and spiritually present in the Lord's Supper is ultimately a mystery. But Calvin invoked the power of the Holy Spirit to unite Christ and heaven with the church on earth. The benefits of this sacrament include participation with Christ, church unity, and nourishment towards sanctification. So we, I, we believe the Lord's Supper has benefits. It, it's, it's a reminder of what Christ has done. It is what we do together as God's people. So we're not necessarily far removed from this. I just don't know if we would go so far to say, that there is specifically the spiritual presence and in any special way than God already is because God is omnipresent, right? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, dwells with every single believer. So 
I don't know if we would be exceptional in saying the Lord's Supper has an exceptional place, because if you have a believer, then you have the Spirit of God with him, right? So those are the positions of baptism and Lord's Supper. And so Baptist distinctives, we primarily hold them to being done in memory. These are acts of obedience, not things that provide salvation. Um, And so that's what we hold as a Baptist position. Now, I wanted to spend, (laughs) actually, I I didn't want to spend, but I think this is important that we kind of try to talk about it. Uh, As we're becoming more and more drawn to, like, reform thinking, not just salvifically, but also we have the London Baptist Confession out there. I wanted to talk a little bit about covenant theology. What is it? Because even if you don't agree with it, I want you to know at least a basic of what it is so you can go ahead and do your study, okay? And so primarily I want us to look at the differences between a Reformed Baptist position of covenant theology and our Presbyterian brothers. Uh, We will see the difference between their two confessions, the 1689 London Baptist and the Westminster Confession. Now I added here after this section a really awesome section about essentially how do you read the Bible in context. Um, I'm not really going to go into it, but let me tell you, this section is gold, okay? If you learn the principles that are taught in this section, it will be very difficult for you to be drawn astray with false teachings, and it will be very easy for you, if God's grace is in it, to grow significantly in your Bible reading. Okay, so I, like I said, I'm not going to go through this. I primarily put this here because I want it to be a blessing for you. Uh, I am very convinced that although I can teach you things or any teacher in, in the word can teach you stuff, if we can equip you with the tools to learn with the aid of the spirit yourself, you are much more set off because if you only learn from a teacher, the problem with that is what happens when a false teacher comes in. Right? If you don't have the tools to discern yourself, then you are basically contingent on if the teacher is good or not, if it's a good day or a bad day in their theology. Right? And so I just put that there for you um, to use in your own studies and to use. It's, it's great for children. It's great for you to have a review. Or if you've never read the Bible very well, um, this could be extremely helpful for you. Um, so let's fast forward through that. Okay. So the part where it says definition of covenant theology. (laughs) Oh, man, this is a wordy definition. I'm going to try to go slow here. All right. So this is by Legan Duncan. Uh, I think it's a good definition. I think we could hold to most of what he's saying here. So covenant theology is a framework for biblical interpretation. So one thing I want you to understand is when we talk about reading in context the Bible, we're not just talking about reading the verse within the paragraph or the paragraph within the book and the book compared to the other books, but we're talking about the context of the biblical truths and commands that God has given throughout the book, okay? And so everyone has a framework that you use. Some people have bad frameworks, some people have good ones, okay? So Covenant Theology says the way that we want to try to look through the Bible, what seems most natural and orderly, is we're going to follow the covenants of the Bible, okay? So that's all it is. It's, it's, it's primarily seeing the Bible through the lens of the covenants or the relationships that God has made throughout the Bible, okay? So that's what it means, a framework. We're using it like the big, like our glasses to read, Okay? Uh, informed by exegetical, biblical, and systematic theology, 
that recognizes that the redemptive history revealed in Scripture is explicitly articulated through a succession of covenants, right? So he's, they're following the covenants in Scripture. So what are the covenants? Well, we see the Adam, covenant with Adam, with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then we have what we call the new covenant. So thus providing an, organized, an organizing principle for biblical theology. Covenant theology also posits theological covenants. Okay, so the covenant of redemption, works and grace. Okay, so how can I explain this? So firstly, you know how sometimes we will use words to describe biblical truths, but the word in and of itself is not found in Scripture? So for example, we talk about the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we can see in Scripture that that truth, that reality is all through Scripture. We just, as humans, decide to use a word to make it a little bit easier. So these theological covenants are not, you're not going to find these words in the Bible. You're not going to find the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works and grace, but they are describing what they believe are implicitly found in Scripture. So let me describe these three real quick. So the covenant of redemption is when the Bible talks about that plan that God made amongst himself before the foundations of the earth to save sinners unto himself through Jesus Christ. That's what they mean when they say the covenant of redemption, okay? Um, the covenant of works is that which starts with Adam. Adam was the one to the federal head of humanity, and God said, you can eat of all this fruit, but do not eat of this one tree, for if you do on that day, you will die. So this was the covenant of works. Now, we understand that in Adam, we would either all live if he was obedient, or we would all die if he wasn't. And we know the answer, he was not obedient, okay? So that is the covenant of works, right? The covenant of grace is the covenant of redemption. It was made in eternity past. The covenant of grace is that manifest in human history, okay? So that's what we talk about, the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Does that make sense? <laughs> so those, are, those are very important, and actually, the, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure, 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 sure. Did you want to? I figured you were. Go ahead. That's right. The covenant of grace is what actually happened like in actuality when Christ takes on a human body. That's right. The covenant of redemption happened in eternity. It didn't, it didn't, actually, it didn't manifest yet. Yeah. Like in actuality. That's really the only difference between it. Yeah. And this is the, the question is, well, why does it matter? <laughs> right? But, yeah. <laughs> people that do make the distinction would be Baptists they don't baptize children because a Baptist would say until Jesus physically dies on the cross and resurrects the full consummation of redemption didn't happen until Calvary the full consummation of it didn't happen until Calvary yeah. it was a mystery that was revealed progressively and it climaxed at Calvary. But if you only hold to the covenant of redemption, you say the moment it was introduced, the whole thing was in. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll go into that. So a little bit. It's, man, I've been, it's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. But I will talk about the distinction when we look at the confessions a little bit later. Okay. Um, where was I? Okay. So we talked about the theological covenants, right? 
um, uh, posits theological covenants and appreciates how the scriptural teaching about covenants entails and relates to a number of vitally important biblical themes and issues, including the purpose of God in history, the nature of the people of God, the federal headships of Adam and Christ, the person and work of Christ, the continuities and discontinuities in the progress of redemptive history, the revelation of the Old and New Testaments, law and gospel, the assurance of salvation, the nature and significance of the sacraments or ordinances, and what it means to walk with God in life. So all he's saying is that when you use the, the covenants of God as a framework, you learn all these truths in it. Okay, that's all he's saying. So I, I put it a simple way. Um, covenant theology is the view that claims that God deals primarily with mankind. We follow that record through covenants. That's all it is. It's just a fancy way to say that. Uh-huh, yes. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'm going to go into that. So that's one of the differences we'll have. So we'll get, we'll get there, okay? Um, okay, so typically, oh, one second. So we talked about that. Okay, so uh, just to kind of, I, in more formal terms, I talked to you about what is the covenant of redemption, when does it happen, and so it says here, typically the notion of the covenant of redemption is pre-temporal, before time, right? It describes an inter-Trinitarian covenant between the Father and the Son to redeem sinners through the substitutionary death of the incarnate Son. The pactum salutis, or the agreement of salvation, that was done, as the Bible says, before the foundations of the world, right? The covenant of grace would be viewed as the enactment, the coming into history of the pretemporal covenant of redemption in space and time. That covenant of grace is seen in various historical epochs with Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, in the prophetic anticipation of the new covenant or the everlasting covenant in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and so on. Um, the covenant of works is the first agreement made between God and man. God established the covenant of works with Adam in Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay? So, we're going to look at these uh, catechisms here. I think we have, okay, we have good. We have right now the London Baptist. But real quick, I just learned some history about these confessions, which kind of blew my mind. So, the 1689 London Baptist Confession has another name. And you know what another name is? It's called the Second London Baptist <laughs> Confession. Now, that's what's kind of interesting. You're like, wait, if there's a second one, where's the first one? Some would say there are three because one was written in 1644, revised in 46, and now we have the 48. It's crazy. So the question is, why are there differences? Okay, so let me, so, all, so I'm going to, the 1646, 1689, the first London Baptist, the second London Baptist. Essentially, the difference is what was the purpose of its writing at the time, okay? There's nothing theologically significantly different between these two. I was looking at forums online, and people were like, I hold this one, and I hold this one. They, they're not different. Their purpose was different, okay? The first confession was written as an apologetic document, so they were trying to defend something. It was seven London Baptist churches that were being accused of being Anabaptists. So they were writing to prove we are not like them. Now, fast, or go back. Remember when I told you a little bit about that? We kind of come from Anabaptists. I was a little wrong on there, so let's 
talk about that. Okay, so in one sense, we have background with Anabaptists because Anabaptists were the first group of people that were like, baptism is for believers. So in that sense, we do see with them. But that's about as far as we go. We actually find our backing coming from Puritanism. What is Puritanism? Puritanism was, so during the Protestant Reformation, you guys remember the Church of England or the Anglican Church? Oftentimes, that church is, well, we say that church was produced because the king was trying to have a divorce and he wasn't getting it. He's like, well, you know what? I don't need the pope to tell me who I'm going to marry or divorce. I'm going to make my own church, okay? So basically, the Puritans were in the Church of England. They're like, you know what? We're not reformed enough. We're still very much Catholic, and we don't like that, so we're going to separate. So we come from that historical background, okay? Those people eventually migrate to America, and that's where we get what we understand to be particular Baptists, right? So I want to fix the history lesson I aired the other day. Okay, so that was the 1646. It was to defend, hey, we're not with those people. We believe these things, okay? The 1689, and we're going to see this when I post them, is that the 1689 and the Westminster are essentially the same document, and there's a reason for that. This, the reason why we're essentially a carbon copy, well, there's some things different, we'll talk about it, is because we were, at this time, Protestantism was being persecuted, and so the, um, the Baptists were trying to show we have unity with the Presbyterian. We're brothers in Christ, so let's make a document proving that we are essentially one and the same. We need to unite because we're being killed left and right, right? Let's not make more enemies than we have to. So what you'll see is they've literally followed chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, we're essentially the same except for, and we'll see them, the things that make us a little bit different, which stop us from being uh, baptizing of, of the children of believers, okay? So the first document, defend against and acclaim. The second document, we have unity with our brothers, okay? So those, those were the two purpose then, okay? Um, so, one second, where am I at? Page 15, am I? Okay. Okay, so uh, we're looking here. So uh, if you never looked at the London Baptist Confession or the Westminster, basically they have chapters describing the different theological points of Scripture. And we are on chapter 7, which is of covenants, God's covenant with man. Okay? So we're just going to read. There's a couple paragraphs, and I'm going to compare it to the Westminster afterwards. Okay? So paragraph 1 of the London Baptist, this is of covenants. It says... The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Basically saying God and man are wholly separate. God is holy, we are not. The only way we could be made right with God if God makes a means to allow finite human beings to be right with him. And the way he does that is via covenants, okay? Uh, scroll down, Chris. Paragraph 2. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, he breaks the covenant of works, right? It pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. So this is just saying uh, man falls through Adam. 
If it was going to be through works, it's not. We clearly see that. God makes the covenant through Jesus Christ. We are saved by works, by the works of another, the works of the God-man Jesus Christ. And we don't come to it through persuasive speech, but we come to Jesus Christ, seeing him as Lord and Savior, because of a regeneration, of imparting of new life by the Spirit. It's a God work through and through, okay? Uh, I think there's more. Go down. Okay, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. That's Genesis 3. And afterwards, by farther steps, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So we talk about the Bible being progressive, right? So like, God always speaks truth in Scripture, but as time goes forward, God is more clear and specific about that truth. Does that say five minutes? Oh, man. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, where was it? Um, and it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality. Man, being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in the state of innocency. So, we're all fallen Adam. There is no way you can come to God. It's actually impossible. Scroll up a little bit. Uh, no, back up to the last paragraph, please. Uh, thank you. Up, down, 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 down. There we go. Thank you. Um, so he's just saying, you are saved by Christ alone. That's basically what it says. Okay, so I don't think any of this, we would be like, ah, oh, that's not bad. No, of course, that's fantastic. Now let's just look real quick at one paragraph from the Westminster Confession to see where we would differ, okay? Um, so if you could just open that, Chris, if you can. Uh, scroll, yeah, right there. Okay, scroll down, um, keep going, um, keep going. So notice, we'll actually look up. Exact same paragraph. There's nothing different, okay? A lot of these things are word for word where we have unity with them. So scroll down. Um, scroll down. Keep going. Keep going. Ah, here we go. <laughs> Wait. Uh, uh, yes, uh, but scroll down a little bit. I just want to see the end. Okay, yeah. Wait. Uh, go to chapter uh, 6 real quick. I just want to... Um, hmm. And go down one more. Oh, there it is. That's what I want to see. Go up. Okay, so this chapter, this verse right here. This, this chapter. Uh, scroll up to the top of it. Right there. Okay, so um, I'm just going to read this. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number, and administer with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy. Scroll down. Uh, to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. Now, this is the part that's really important to, to show our distinguishing. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one in the same, under various dispensations. So you're probably asking, like, what the heck does that mean? Okay, so we talked about this idea of the covenant of grace, that this is through Jesus Christ that all people are saved. The Reformed Baptist position is, when you read Genesis 3, and God says there will be a, ma a man born under a woman who will crush the head of the snake, this is the covenant of grace. And we believe, or the Reformed position believes, that all the covenants that God therefore makes, like with, with Moses, 
and Noah and David, that these are shadows and types, but they are not the substance of the covenants of grace. They are pointing, like in a mirror dimly, right? But they are not the covenants of grace. The covenant of grace to the Reformed Baptists is exactly what the new covenant is. Those are one and the same. The Presbyterian would say this last term. No, the covenant of grace is through all those things. It was just administered differently. Now, why does that matter? Um, the reason why that matters is I believe that the error that they fall into is that the old covenant to them is a one-for-one -one parallel of the new. So when they see something in the old, they're trying to find its New Testament equivalent. And this is where they go wrong. So here's the one place I think they go wrong. Circumcision was given to all the people of Israel. Baptism is what, we believe, what they believe to be the New Testament equivalent. The problem with that is what does the Bible say circumcision was representing? The Bible says, Paul says, it's not circumcision of the flesh, it's circumcision of the heart. So that's a complete, you miss, you totally went left field on that one. Another thing, and we'll end here, is on the last page you'll see on the new covenant versus old covenant. I'm not going to read all these, but I just want you to see when the Bible says it's a new covenant, it really means that. Essentially, that's what we believe. We consistently believe when the Bible says new, it's actually new. Okay, so here's the main difference based on these verses, and you can read them on your own time. The Old Testament covenant, you would see Israel, but they were not all Israel. Do you understand? They, they were in the different tribes. They lived. They did the sacrifices. They did all the, the ritual laws, but they were not all actual elect. Okay, the difference in the new covenant is that everyone in the new covenant is elect. There is no question. And we see this in Jeremiah. He says, this new covenant is going to be where I write the works of the law on their heart, where I make them follow me, right? The difference is that one is a shadow type, and you can see it just can't work. This one, every single person's a believer because God makes them so, okay? That's the main difference. So one, I want to end with this. Oftentimes, when we think about what's the difference from us to a Presbyterian, we say it's because they baptize children and believers and we don't. That's not the difference primarily. That's just the result of us seeing the covenants different. Does that make sense? Because we know the new is different, we don't treat it like the old. That's what makes us different. Does that make sense? So um, that's a lot. Okay, well, all that to say, I know I, sometimes it's hard for me to do studies like this because I'm like, man, I'm not like in the Bible. Like, but I, you need to understand the Baptist distinctives are historically held. I want you to know historically why we believe what we believe. We're not like just we came up with this stuff two years ago, right? God has been faithful to keep men to bring these truths. So I want you to see that part. And there are biblical proof texts to this. When you read any of those confessions, you can see at the bottom there are proof texts. They're not just speaking in a void. They're just annotating what they believe Scripture says. So my, my best thing for you is if you leave here, you know, what do I do with this? Well, one, know that we're historical. Second, study and test it in Scripture. Don't believe nothing I say just because I say it. Don't believe nothing just because it's quote-unquote historical. Believe because you see it in Scripture, okay? But just be thankful that we're in a, a local body that has history in Christ's faithful word and that we, see, we seek to live it faithfully, and God is good to reveal that to us. Okay, so don't be afraid to live according to the beliefs that God has shown, okay? We're in the new covenant. All of God's people are saved because God has promised it, and it's beautiful and wonderful, okay? So let me pray and let you guys go.